name this morning, in the name of Jesus. It is a delight today that Pastor Bruce Steele, his wife Rhonda, uh, with us this morning in town for a family reunion. Also has his brother Jeff, his sister April, uh, that are here today. And I'm not even going to attempt to mention all the family that's here. I'll let you do that. You can make them mad instead of me. But we're delighted this morning to have Pastor Bruce Deal from 1989 to 1992. Uh, served as youth pastor at this church. This is his home church. He's a graduate of Pulaski County. And uh, I ran into him down at a basketball tournament last winter. Uh, when he left here, he went to work for Daryl Rice in Dorval, Georgia. And um, Brother Rice had some extra tickets to the ACC tournament and called me. Me and Jensen went down. I just had an opportunity to sit beside uh, Brother Deal during uh, one of the games and uh, had a chance to talk with him. Knew him from afar uh, during my time in Virginia, but I just said to him, sometime when you're in the area, I want you to come back and preach for us. And uh, thankfully, he was able to be here today. And uh, Pastor Deal, thank you for the service that you gave to this church and pouring into young people that uh, are here today that are a direct result of your ministry and your labor and your sacrifice. It's a delight to have you and Rhonda with us today. And uh, we just are glad to welcome them back home. So I told him to come today to preach, to take his time. If you're a guest, we're not a 12 o'clock church. 1215, 1230, whatever the Lord wants to do. Uh, so we're not bound by a clock today. So I told him to take his time. So would you help me this morning welcome back home Pastor Bruce Deals. He comes this morning to preach for us. good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's good to be home. And uh, we drove up on uh, uh, Thursday. We're driving up and we're coming up 77. We had two vehicles because all of my pastel of youngins and uh, husbands and future husbands and stuff. And uh, so Cassie was in a car behind us. And after we crossed the Virginia line, I blew the horn several times when we crossed that line. And uh, she texted me and she said, I bet you and mama are going down memory lane, aren't you? I said, we are, and uh, I love Virginia. And then I uh, walked in this morning, and the first thing uh, that I saw once I walked in church was the beauty and grace of Shirley Stout as she welcomed us. And then I took one step and saw Randy Andrews, dear Jesus. And so uh, <coughs> the contrast in things there. And, uh, but uh, really good to be here. Took a couple more steps, and Ronnie Burchett asked me if I'd like to fight in the hall. And I thought, well, we, we can try. So... Uh, just really good to be here this morning, and uh, thanks, Travis, for the opportunity to be with you. And uh, always honored when a pastor lets me stand in their place. And, uh, and uh, I have no idea. We're not that good enough friends for you to talk about how much older I am than you yet. Um, your time will come. I used to be, you know, young and wear little cuff links and nice ties and little fancy stuff, too. Uh, anyway. I always like when people say something about me before I get the mic. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be here and uh, have Rhonda and Cassie, Kelsey, Kenzie, Kayla, and Carly uh, with us this morning. Our son-in-law, Matt, our future son-in-law, Garrison, uh, all with us today. And then a bunch of my other family uh, that are here all the time and so from out of state that are here for our reunion this past week. It, it's been 23 years in two weeks, I figured out. In two weeks uh, from now, we announced 23 years ago that we were leaving and headed to Atlanta. 
And uh, in that 23 years, a lot has happened in my life. A lot's happened in your life. We have, uh, Ron and I, obviously when we left, we only had Cassie was almost three and Kelsey was one. And so since then, we've had the birth of three more daughters and uh, our oldest has gotten married and, and Matt's been in our family about three years now. Kenzie will get married next May. A lot of stuff's happened. A lot of stuff's happened in your life. We've said goodbye to some friends and family in the last 23 years that have gone on to be with the Lord. We've said hello to some new children that have come along. But through it all, through those 23 years and through all the years of our life, the one thing that has remained constant is the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. His love and His grace and His mercy have extended to us wherever we have found ourselves, wherever we have traveled, whatever we have done, wherever we will go, he will, always, he will already be there waiting on us. And that's something that brings me joy, brings us promise, it brings us all hope that tomorrow there is the potential of a greater miracle than we saw yesterday, amen? And it's just such a pleasure to be with you this morning and, and to share uh, in time together. And, and Travis talked about how easy it was that Cecil made for him to get into ministry and stuff. Cecil didn't make it that easy for Jeff and I. And uh, so we're glad that we survived living in Cecil's home anyway in all those years uh, before he got to be a, a sweet, nice old grandfather. And uh, it's just amazing. It's Rhonda keeps saying there's hope for you, Bruce. She goes, I watched your dad, and uh, he made it to a sweet old grandfatherly. I know there's hope for you. Um, I want to talk a little bit this morning out of, of one passage in the Old Testament, one passage in the New Testament, sort of tie those together for you. In Nehemiah chapter 1, there's a really cool story. Probably my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Nehemiah and, and some of the things that take place there that correlate to my life and Rhonda's life and what God's had us do over the past 18 years specifically. But in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse number 2, Nehemiah says that some of his brethren from his hometown of Jerusalem have come to visit. And Nehemiah says, I inquired of my brother Hananiah and I asked of him about the condition of my hometown. And he says, Hananiah gave me the report of my condition of my hometown of Jerusalem. And he said the gates had been destroyed. They had been torn down and destroyed with fire, and that the walls of the city had been, uh, great destruction had come to them, and that my friends and family of my hometown had been taken captive. Now, that's a bad report, right? He says the walls are destroyed, the gates are burned with fire, my friends and family have been taken captive. And, and if we ask about just about any city in the world right now, we can say almost the same thing, right? The walls of protection have been torn down and, and the gates that keep the enemy from coming in have been destroyed. And friends and family all around us have been taken captive by sin and by addiction and by depression and, and by struggles in life. And Nehemiah says this, he said, when I heard this report, I sat down. He said, it so overwhelmed me when I heard the report about my city that it literally knocked me off my feet, that, that I had to compose myself. I had to gather myself. And he said, I sat down. And then he said, I wept and I fasted and I prayed for many days. He said, I looked at my city and it was in disarray and it was in disorder and it was in destruction. And he said, I, I sat down and I, I began to weep. And I began to pray and I began to fast. And after he wept and he prayed and he fasted, if you read the rest of chapter 1, he begins to pray a prayer of repentance and he apologizes to the God of all creation for the behavior of those of his friends and his family and even himself for the way they have not honored God over the years and the fact that destruction has now come to their city as a result of their disobedience. And you know, I think along the way, if we're not careful, we lose the ability to weep. 
Sometimes we lose the ability to pray. We lose the ability. We just start to take for granted that the way things are, the way things are going to be. Well, God didn't say that the way things are, the way things have to be. He said if we trust Him, if we call upon Him, if we fast and pray, that He can bring restoration to those things. And so 18 years ago, Rod and I, after we had left and we'd gone down to Doraville to Pleasantdale Church, as Pastor Travis mentioned, and we had been on staff there about five years, and I was asked by the overseer of North Georgia to go downtown to a little church called the Mission Church downtown that had been in existence since 1970, and uh, 1969 actually, and they were down to about 20 folks and no money. And he said, just go down and close the church for us. Would you do that and sell the property? And said, just a six-month consulting assignment. So go downtown, close the church, and sell the property. So I asked Rhonda, we talked about it, and it would be something different. I could preach every Sunday while we're closing and something out of the ordinary. So I said, okay. So we go downtown, and, and we go into this little church. And the first Sunday, we walk in, and there's about 20, 22 folks, one keyboard, one piano, a woman singing Sheltered in the Arms of God. That's the only song they sang that morning. Everybody it's, there, there's no joy in the house. Everybody's worn out. People have left. The building's falling down. They don't have any money to, behind on all the bills. But I shared a little sermon. And, and we came together. And those 20, 25 folks, there just seemed to be a real cool little time when we prayed in the altar together. And I went back and I go, well, this will be okay for the next six months to hang out with these people. Well, four or five Sundays later, we walk in on a Sunday morning and the same 20 or 25 folks are there. And as we start worship, another young lady walks in and joins the congregation. And she sort of stood out in the crowd. She didn't really fit in the church crowd. Looked like she'd probably been up all night. Turns out she had. She'd been working all night. And, and at the end of the service, she walks down the aisle. And she's got tears streaming down her face. And she takes me by the hands and she says, uh, Pastor, I've been hooker and stripper for the past 14 years she said I'm a prostitute can you help me and I said well I think we can and so we led her in a prayer that morning and she accepted Jesus Christ with tears streaming down her face and it was just a really cool thing and and the next Sunday she came back do you know it's always good when somebody gets saved and then comes back to church that's a really good thing but anyway so she came back to church and she brought Bill with her. Bill was a 52-year-old alcoholic that hadn't been in church in 30 years and was one of her paying customers. And during the week, this brand new convert says to Bill, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me. And Bill came to church with her, and they sit right over here on the second row, and we sat there, and we started singing that little chorus, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than words can say. And five minutes into the service, Bill steps out in the aisle. Tears are running down his face. He's sobbing. He falls down on his knees, and he starts wailing out loud, and, and we have to stop the service. He's disrupting the service, you know, and, and we have to stop. And I go down, I say, sir, can I help you? And he goes, well, I think I need this Jesus y'all are singing about. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of the service after I preach, you know, we got this little order. And he goes, no, 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 I want him right now. And so we led him to Jesus right now. And the next Sunday, four more drug addicts and alcoholics and prostitutes showed up. And I went, huh, we're closing a church and selling the property, but all of these people in crisis are coming in. I said, well, at least it's good that on the way out with this church, people are still finding Jesus, right? Because I had a life I was going to live, boys and girls. Ron and I had a nice house in the suburbs. Our girls went to a great school. I had a great job. Life was good. I preached to people that looked like me, sounded like me, and smelled like me every Sunday. I was leading youth groups all over the country. We'd been overseas trips a number of times. I was a popular speaker at youth events. I thought, this, I'm not going downtown and hang out in the inner city. Have you lost your mind, God? 
I said, I'm staying up here. And four months into our six-month assignment, I walked in one Sunday morning, and there were nearly a hundred drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless folks, and hookers who've invited each other to church. I looked at Ryan and I drew on my deep theological training and all the education my dad had given me, and I said this passionate, powerful, deep statement. I said, we've been conned by God. We have been conned by God because I had no intention of going downtown. My intention was come back somewhere in the mountains of Virginia and pastor a great church and hunt and fish and eat chocolate pie and fried chicken and watch Andy Griffith. I didn't have any intention of hanging out in the hood. So I looked at Ron and I said, we've been conned by God. I, I, I think we have to do this. We went back to our pastor, Pastor Rice, and, and we resigned our position after six months. And we went downtown and we started pastoring this little church and hanging out with these folks. And a couple months later, Rhonda called me one morning out of her prayer time and she was weeping. And she said, if we're going to win a city and impact a city, we got to go to the city. And I said, I was hoping you wouldn't figure that out, darling. So we started looking around and, and the homes we could afford, we didn't think we should move our kids into in this neighborhood. It was it's pretty tough neighborhood. And, and so the houses we wanted to live into, we couldn't afford because the church didn't have any money. So I said to Rondo, the third floor of this 65-year-old church building is empty. And she said, well, let's just move in then. And so we had four daughters at the time. They were seven, five, three, and one. And we moved in the, sixth floor, the third floor of this 65-year-old church building. That's yeah, an amazing thing. They don't put bathtubs in churches when they build them. I can't figure that out. We moved in. There's no bathtub. There's no bedrooms. We're living in Sunday school rooms. Our girls are taking a bath in a number two wash tub that we'd fill up with water. It was a hoop, man. It was fun, and the first night we were there, this crack addict tried to steal the van in the parking lot, and he was messed up, and he hot-wired a windshield wiper motor. So we went out the next morning, and the van's still there, and the windshield wiper going like this. <laughs> we had crack addicts sleeping on the front porch, homeless people sleeping in the basement that we had to move out. The first time I filled up the baptismal, baptismal pool for a baptism, there was a homeless guy sleeping under the baptistry in the sanctuary. Bedroll, food, and everything. Just sleep. I'm like, hey, buddy, you may want to come out here. So anyway, well, it's crazy. We moved in this 65-year-old church building on the third floor and just started reaching out and doing stuff. We lived there for the first six years. We've been My six-month assignment is now 18 years, right? And the first six of those years, we lived in that 65-year-old church building. It was the most fun I've ever had as a pastor, as a minister. We're broken into 34 times. We had three vehicles stolen, guns, knives, fist fights. I've chased guys down the street at 3 o'clock in the morning in my underwear with a baseball bat. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> well, maybe not. So anyway, I've been in superior court with guys that tried to kill me, walk in, try to kill me. They were trying to decide if this guy was really serious and not about killing me, so we had a probable cause hearing. So they bring me in. I'm standing downtown Atlanta, superior court in front of the judge. There's deputies everywhere. They bring Michael, the guy that's going to kill me in from the side, and they got to decide if there's enough evidence to keep him for trial or not. So they walk him in. There's a deputy on each side. He's got shackles on his hands and feet. They walk him right up in front of the judge. He turns and looks at me, and before the judge ever says a word, Michael looks at me and goes, and the judge said, we'll keep him. We had, listen, it was the most fun. It was crazy. People started showing up, 
inviting each other to church, getting saved. We started moving people in. We started fostering little girls whose moms were going to rehab or going back to solve their legal issues. I woke up one morning, there were 17 single moms and little girls living with us. I started counting between Rhonda and my five daughters and 17, I was living with 23 women. That explains this right here. I thought, dear Lord, I was in a shower one day upstairs in the church and a homeless dude opened the bathroom door and goes, you in there, preacher? <laughs> I said, I am. You mind handing me a towel there, buddy? So anyway, just radical transformation of people's lives. And we looked at, and I understood that what had happened was we had applied Nehemiah chapter 1 we had heard about what was going on in our city. We had wept about it. We had prayed about it. We had fasted about it. But unfortunately, too many in the church stop in chapter 1. We hear about crisis. We understand crisis. We are made aware of crisis. And we weep and we fast and we pray, but we don't go and do anything about after we have wept and fasted and prayed. E.V. Hill, one of my favorite preachers, pastored in central, uh, Los Angeles, South Central L.A., he said, after you have prayed for the hungry to be fed, get up and take them something to eat. And after you have prayed for the naked to have clothes, get up and take them some clothes. And after you have prayed for the homeless to have a house, go build them one. And then he said this, he said, you are often the answer to your own prayer. And Rhonda and I decided that we were not just going to live in, in Nehemiah chapter 1. We decided to move to Nehemiah chapter 2 because in Nehemiah chapter 2, you know the story, Nehemiah is the wine cup bearer. He takes the cup to the king and he samples it before to make sure that nobody has poisoned the cup. And when he goes before the king in chapter 2, the king looks at him and he goes, why is your face so downcast? Why are you so sad? I have never seen you look this way before. And Nehemiah says, well, my city is in crisis, and he describes it. And then the king asks him a question. The king says, Nehemiah, what would you have me do? Now, if I'd been Nehemiah, I think it would have made sense to say, why don't you send some block masons over and rebuild the walls? Why don't you send some iron workers over and rehang the gates? Why don't you send some warriors over and go set my friends and family free? But here's what Nehemiah said. What did Nehemiah say? He said, if it pleased the king, how about sending me? I'll, I'll go. I'll go. If I'm the king, I'll go. You'll go. You're a wine cup bearer. You live in the palace. You wear fancy clothes and eat fancy food and sleep in a nice bed. You're well cared for and well taken care of. What do you know about building a city wall? What do you know about hanging gates? What do you know about going to war? But Nehemiah said, let me go because they are my people. That is my city. That is my community. Those are my friends. That's my family. And Rhonda and I decided, and our girls decided, well, our girls didn't decide, we just put them in the car. But anyway, Rhonda and I decided, we're going downtown Atlanta because God has said, that's your city. This is your, those walls have to be put back together. And so we said, let's go. So we move in this church, and we live there for six years, and we outgrow it. There are people living everywhere, ministries going crazy, city of refuges prospering. I said, we got to find another building. So I sent a real estate buddy of mine over into the Bluff. The Bluff is 30314 zip code in the, in the city of Atlanta. Highest crime rate in the state of Georgia, highest homeless population in the state, highest number of HIV positive cases, more men and women in jail from our zip code than any zip code in the state. 60% of all the murders that occur in a five, six million population in Atlanta occur in our neighborhood. I said, go over there and get me a building. Why, why are we going to move away from trouble? Let's move into trouble. And they said, well, we didn't doubt that out of you, Bruce. So we just go over and I said, find me a building. My real estate buddy came back. He said, I found eight acres of land. Five acres under roof, 210,000 square foot warehouse building. 
He said, an eight-foot fence with razor wire and an arm guard at the gate. I said, my dreams have come true, man. Go find out how much they want for that. He went and he came back and he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand dollars for it. And my counteroffer was, we don't have any money. <laughs> And the owner goes, well, I can't accept that. And I said, okay. And so the next month I made the same offer, and the next month the same offer, and six months later he gave it to us. Gave us eight acres of land with five acres under roof in the middle of the toughest neighborhood in all of Georgia. Hey, for somebody in the house, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask. God's got more than you or I can comprehend. He's got more than our mind can compute and understand. He's got it, and he wants to give it to those who are faithful and true and, and will follow the call that he has placed upon their life. I think too often we shortchange ourselves because we go, well, that ask is too big an ask. Listen, there's no ask that's too big for God. He wants to give us more than we can comprehend, understand, manufacture in our own mind. In this community, it's time to start asking bigger than you've ever asked. You've been here forever, guess what? It's time to be bigger than you've ever been, more powerful than you've ever been, greater outreach than you've ever had, greater influence than you've ever had. Ask God for something that you've been afraid to believe for before. Ask him for it. See what he might do. I just asked Malin to give it to me, and he ended up saying, yeah. And so I had lunch with him about six months ago. The guy that gave me the property is 83 years old now, and he's about to retire, and he's wrapping up some business stuff. We have lunch about once a quarter, and as long as he's going to write me a check, I'll go eat wherever he wants me to, and so we do. And, uh, and so we go, we sit down together, and he says, Bruce, I want to tell you something. He said, I didn't tell you this back then when I gave it to you. He said, but when I gave you the property, I still owed $1.2 on it. He said, I had to go pay it off so I could give it to you. How you like that maples right there? I went and paid it off so I can give it to you. So we moved in, and I said, you know what? We're going to have a ministry that anybody in crisis walks on this campus will meet their need, whatever it is. We're going to be a one-stop shop for those in crisis. And we decided to do it this way. I didn't understand it when I started it. When I looked back, I realized what we did. So there's another story I want you to think about in John chapter 4. You already know this story. You can read it later make sure I'm telling you the truth. But in John chapter 4, at the end of John chapter 3, the people in the land have started to count the number of people that Jesus is baptizing and compare it to the number of people John the Baptist is baptizing. So there's a little tension between the camps. And Jesus decides, well, I don't want to be a part of the tension, so I'm going to go over here and we've got to pass through Samaria to get to where I'm going. We've got to go by a sick car to get there. And he says, we're going to go away from the conflict. And he says, let's go over. So they go over and Jesus stops at a well. And he sends his disciples to get food. And he's sitting at the well. And you know the story of, the, of Jesus in the conversation with the Samaritan woman. I don't know if you know this. Some of you probably do. The longest recorded personal conversation Jesus had in all of Scripture is with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. His longest personal conversation is not with one of his disciples. His longest personal conversation is not with one of the religious leaders. The longest one-on-one -on -one conversation Jesus has is with a woman who has been married five times and is now living with a man that is not her husband. Pretty interesting if you ask me. And so there are four things about what happens in this story that I want to talk to you this morning that I'll set out. If for us to be truly impactful in our ministry, to make a huge kingdom impact in the neighborhoods and the cities and the counties and the, and the provinces in which we live, I think we have to have three things that result in a fourth thing. Number one, I think our ministry has to be intentional. I think it has to be intentional. 
You know, we run into a lot of accidental ministry opportunities, don't we? Well, I mean, we'll just be somewhere and we run into somebody that's got a flat tire and we stop and fix it. Well, that's an accidental ministry opportunity. We run into somebody that doesn't have enough money to buy groceries and so we buy groceries. That's an accidental ministry opportunity. Hopefully we take advantage of those. There's nothing wrong with accidental ministry opportunities. We ought to take advantage of them. But we should be on a daily basis intentional in our ministry efforts. You see, Jesus didn't accidentally sit down on a well that a Samaritan woman's coming to, Right? Jesus intentionally sat down because there was kingdom work to be done. You know, it's easy to explain the difference between accidental and intentional. I, I go home after church on Sunday. When we're down home in Atlanta, we go into church. I preach. We go to lunch. We hang out. We go home, and I sit down in my chair. Everybody, all the guys got your chair, right? So I go home, and I sit down in my chair, and I turn on the Braves or golf or whatever, and in a few minutes, I accidentally go to sleep. It's a regular thing. I mean, it just happens. Rhonda goes, why don't you go to bed? I go, this is my chair. I'm going to watch this ball game. She goes, you know, you're not going to. You know you're going to go to sleep. No, I'm not going to go to sleep. And about three hours later, I wake up and go, well, I went to sleep, right? And so I accidentally go to sleep. Yesterday, the, Ron and the girls and I and, and the guys, we stayed over to place on the lake because we didn't want to pile up on my family with as many as I got now and the amount of food that Matt and Garrison can eat. So anyway... We went over there, and we're standing on the lake, and I walked down yesterday morning. Rhonda's sitting down there by the lake. She's reading her Bible, and one of the other girls is there. Kaylin's down there doing her devotion, and Cassie's laying up on the top being a sun goddess. And, and so they're all down there doing their stuff. And I sat down in the shade, and I've got my iPad, and I opened to the Scripture, and, and I'm going to do my morning devotion and read sitting there. And after about seven minutes, I intentionally went to sleep. I didn't accidentally go to sleep. I'm sitting that water's lapping up against the shore. It's making a sweet sound. There's a little breeze blowing. I'm sitting in the shade. I looked at the word of the Lord and said, I'll see you after a while. I just wasn't that spiritual right then. I closed it. I laid it down to the side. I took my hearing aids out. Right? Now, let me tell y'all something. This something is really cool. If, if any of you guys are, any of you men, I know you the pride issue and you don't want to get your hearing aids and you, you're prideful and all that. Listen, I got my hearing aids about six, seven years ago. Best thing I've ever done. I hear people now. The technology is so advanced now. Here's one of the positive things. I got these hearing aids that are Bluetooth equipped. Right? So when I want to wear this little necklace around, I can turn my hearing aids up and down on my cell phone now. Gene, I turn my hearing aid up, I can turn it down, I go to the theater, I push a button, my hearing aid's Bluetooth actually taps into the speakers in the theater when I'm watching a ball game, I can turn it up, my volume up and down, and here's the best thing, having a wife and five daughters, it has a mute option on my hearing aids now. <laughs> it's awesome, man. You just hit mute, we'll be riding down the road and I'll see Rhonda flailing over there and I'll turn and she'll go, unmute me! <laughs> but we're down there at the lake and I didn't even have to I didn't have my little necklace on so I just took them out I intentionally went to sleep see you and I accidental things will happen in our life but I think the greatest kingdom impact we can have is when we are intentional about our relationship with Jesus Christ and we're intentional about spreading his love and expressing his grace and mercy so when we got to City of Refuge, I said, we're going to be intentional. We got 210,000 square feet. We're going to build stuff that intentionally that's going to make sure that people's lives will be better for the rest of their life. 
And so after we are intentional, see, too often I think, and I was a part of this, too often in the church world in general, we plant a church on Sunday morning and we open the doors and we hope somebody comes in, maybe by accident, and then they accept Jesus Christ and we think we've done a wonderful work. But I think if we're a bit more intentional and we go to get them and not just invite them, I think there's a greater prospect that we will have revival and people come to know Jesus Christ. The second thing is, so Jesus is intentional, he sets down. The second thing that happens in, in, in John chapter 4 that happened in our ministry that I think should happen in all of our lives is it was a practical expression of ministry. So he's intentional. He sets down at a spot knowing the woman's going to come by. And then it's a very practical expression because what does he say to her when she walks up? Can I have a drink of water? Water's very practical. Jesus is thirsty. He's been walking around in the wilderness, in the desert. It's desert land. He walks around and just goes, can I have a drink of water? And they start talking about water. Jesus doesn't open the conversation talking about, have you yet received your regeneration? Have you been justified? Have you been delivered? Jesus doesn't start going, do you know Jesus? Do you believe in the Holy Ghost? Jesus starts by going, how about a drink of water? It's a practical expression. So the girls and I, one of the things that we like to do, they do better than I do, but we like to run together. And so every month this year, we'll run a little race together. Most of them are 5Ks because I don't run much further than that, but we run 5Ks every now and then. We'll run a 10K together. So the 4th of July, Brad's come down a couple years and run with us, and, and we run the 4th of July, uh, the 10K, it's 6.2 miles, and uh, it's 60,000 runners this year, the largest 10K in the, in the United States. And it's just a lot of fun. And we run this thing. I've been running it 20 years now. The girl's been running for a long time. We run a race. Everybody runs it just to get the T-shirt. And, you know, the, the fast folks up front, they're already having lunch before we even get started. So we're so far back. And so, it, But it's a lot of fun. And for 20 years, at the same corner right before you get to Moe's Mexican Restaurant, every year for the past 20 years that I've run, there are these two guys who set up on the sidewalk. For these 60,000 runners, they've got a giant cross that they lean up against the telephone pole. One of them stands up on a little platform, a box they've got, and, and the other one holds a microphone, and one of them preaches for the whole race, right? Three, four hours people are running by. These guys are in suits and ties. It's July the 4th. It's 85 degrees at 7 o'clock in the morning in Atlanta. They got a big cross. They're preaching hellfire and brimstone. They're telling us all we're going to hell. I'm like, I'm just trying to go for a run. Why do I have to go to hell for that, right? They're, they're just preaching hellfire and brimstone. And I'm telling you, for 20 years... I have not yet seen one runner stop mid-stride and run over to the sidewalk and accept Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever done it. Now, I tell you what, if they had a glass of cold water, I might stop. There are actually people on the course that hand out Krispy Kreme donuts while you're running. My Kaylin, she ran right by that box, picked up a Krispy Kreme, right? A practical expression of something you need opens the door for an opportunity for a conversation that may have some impact for the rest of your life. I went out to Denver to run a half marathon a few years ago and, and I didn't plan well. I thought I could run fine, but I, I didn't plan well for the altitude and the elevation and all that. I flew into Denver on Friday night and got in about 9 o'clock, went to bed, got up at 6 o'clock the next morning. Half marathon started at 7 o'clock. I just left Atlanta. I went to Denver. There's a three-hour time difference. There's two-hour time difference. There's, uh, well, I'm at like 8,900 feet elevation, right? About three miles into 13.1 miles. I said, I'm just going to die. 
I'm going to die right here in Denver and they're going to fly me home to Rwanda, right? Because I was not prepared. I had not trained well enough. I wasn't prepared for the elevation, altitude, the lack of oxygen. About 10 miles in, I started dehydrating really bad. My nose starts bleeding. My hands and feet start swelling. And it was sponsored. This half marathon was sponsored by a Christian organization. About 10 miles in, I think I'm just before cardiac arrest. And this woman on the street goes, keep going, buddy. Keep going. Jesus is with you. And with all the strength I could muster, I looked at her and said, you think he wants to run for me a while? <laughs> at that moment, there was nothing practical about her saying Jesus is with you. People who don't know Jesus don't want the first conversation you and I have with them to be about Jesus. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm going to mess with you a little bit. The, the, the first conversation we have doesn't have to be about hell or heaven or eternal life. Or salvation. Because the third thing Jesus does is it becomes relational. So he's intentional. He sets down in a spot to meet the lady. It's very practical. It's a drink of water. And then it becomes relational because he says to her, go get your husband. Now we've moved from talking about water to talking about marriage. We're talking about personal relationship. We're talking about the household. And she says, as you know, I don't have a husband. I've been married five times. The man I'm living with now is not my husband. Jesus knows all that in advance, but he wants to open up relationship. So Ron and I decided early on we're going to be very intentional. We're going to direct this. We're not just going to scatter shot everywhere. We're going to be very practical. We're going to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give housing to those who don't have it, provide medical care, mental health care, dental and vision to those who don't know have that. We're going to have a job training center where we train young men and women to be chefs. We're going to have a, an auto training center where we train guys and girls to be mechanics. We're going to be very practical in what we do. And we're going to develop a relationship. We're going to get to know your name. We're going to know where you come from. We're going to know your background. We're going to know your life story. Rhonda often says to me, when I, don't, when I get a little aggravated with somebody in our ministry, she'll go, you don't know what happened to them when they were a child. Well, let's go find out what happened when they were a child. We have to have relationship. And listen, if we are intentional and we are practical and we are relational, guess what gets to happen? We get to be a part of the eternal decision. Hallelujah. You see, we get to Jesus says to her after being intentional and relational and, and practical and relational, he says, now I have water to give of you that you will never thirst again. And she says, well, I know there is a prophet. You must be a prophet. I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus manifests himself as that. And she goes back and says, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. It might be the Messiah. It might just be Jesus. It might just be the Savior. It might just be the one who will forgive us of our sins. But the eternal conversation did not happen until the intentional, practical, relational aspects had taken place. And so we got this 210,000 square foot and we built housing for 250 to 300 homeless women and children who live on campus every day for 180 days to get all their needs met. We built a 10,000 square foot medical clinic, medical, mental health, dental, and vision. We got a private Christian school. Bright Futures was here with you just a couple Sundays ago, middle school and high school. We got a culinary arts training program and a Napa Auto Skills Center. All of this stuff taking place because there are people who just need their needs to be met. And if their needs are met in an intentional, practical, relational way, then we have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ. 
So we met Jake 13 or 14 years ago. Jake was a, had been a former PGA teaching pro and had lost his license to teach golf and, and had become a crack addict and was living in the streets. And, and Jake and I got to be buddies and he started <coughs> living in our houses, stayed with us in the church, lived in one of our recovery homes. And <coughs> for 13 years, we cared for Jake. He'd be in jail, out of jail, on crack, off crack, on alcohol, off alcohol. Come in, take a shower in our place, get clothes in our place, eat in our place, stay. He'd come to worship. He'd stand on his side every Sunday. He'd come to, that he was there. He would stand on his side. Jake would raise his hands. Big old tears would run down his face. He was broken. He was beat up. He was weary. He didn't have a relationship with his family. We were all that Jake had. We were very intentional. We said, Jake, we're going to love you and care for you. We showed up where he was. He left one night from one of our homes. I went looking for him. It's December. It was cold. It was dark, and I go down in the hood to find Jake, and I walk in this little old shop that's selling all kind of stuff that's illegal. And Jake's cleaning up in the corner, and I go running over to him. I go, Jake, what? Come Jake comes up to me, and he goes, Pastor, you can't be in here. And I go, why not? He goes, Pastor, they kill you down here. And I go, they will? Why are they going to kill me? He goes, Pastor, you are white. I said, oh, my God, you're right. I am white. And Jake said, they'll kill you. Jake started calling me the ghetto rev 13 years ago, and then they just dropped rev, and so Jake just called me ghetto. What's up, ghetto? How you doing, ghetto? All the guys in the street call guys. And so Jake, we go through this whole journey with Jake. And so last year, late last year in October or so, Jake, uh, he started coming back. We missed him for a little while. He was back, and he was struggling, and, and I had a truck parked on the property. It was broken down. It wasn't running at the moment, King Cab. Uh, and, and, and Jake said, now, can I just sleep in the truck a couple nights? Sure, Jake, you can sleep in the truck. He didn't want to come inside. He was uncomfortable. And, and so Steve Grimes, one of the guys that works for me, came, got me on a Monday morning. He said, Pastor, he said, there's somebody sleeping in the back of your truck. He goes, but it's not Jake. He said, this guy's a great big guy. And so we go back and he said, I can't rouse him. I can't get him awake. And, and so we walk out and I look in the window and I look at Steve and I go, well, it is Jake and he's dead. And he's been there for two or three days and his body is swollen. And so we had to call the 911 and they brought the coroner's department out and and they cracked the window because the doors were locked. And Jake's laying in the back seat of my truck dead. And in the floors is golf clubs. Old set of golf clubs. Just the irons and woods were gone. Just this whole set of irons laying there. Jake's dead. And the, and the coroner start making a joke about, man, he's big. It's going to be hard to get him out. This is nasty. And it was hot. And when they cracked the window, the smell, stench was awful. We had been intentional with Jake. We, we had been practical. We had fed him and housed him and clothed him. And we had relationship. We called each other nicknames. And Jake would take me in the parking lot and show me what I was doing wrong with my golf swing. And I'd take him to play in tournaments with me, golf tournaments around Atlanta, where I'd take Jake with me, this homeless guy that I would show up with and people would look at. And Jake would just hit it long and straight over. And it's just so fun. And here he's dead lying in the back of the truck. And, and I'm like, the question starts to rise. Has our intentionality and our practicality and our relational relationship with him, has this been worth it? Have we invested 13 years and nothing has happened and we've lost this man, this soul? And they pull Jake out and they start going through his old nasty jean pockets and in his front right pocket, they pull out a little address book. We're able to find his daughter's name and number down and making the call for the funeral arrangements. And then they pull out of his left front pocket a little green New Testament that Jake had gotten in the mission church years and years and years ago. 
And he had his name in it, and I opened that New Testament. I'm standing in the parking lot, and, and I had already wept, and I was already disappointed. I'd had a little bit of anger. I'd been standing out there a couple hours, like, what in the world? Why they're processing and getting him ready? And, and I start flipping through this little old green New Testament. And I start seeing verses of Scripture that Jake had circled and underlined that he had heard me speak on. And I flipped over and I looked at John 3, 16 and Jake had taken a red pen and he had circled it twice and on the left column he had written down a date. And you know what I think happened on that date? I think because we had been intentional and practical and relational, I think on that date, Jake understood that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I think on that date, Jake prayed a sinner's prayer and he invited Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of his life. And I think when he breathed his last breath in that truck, he woke up in the arms of God Almighty. When we are intentional and practical and relational, we have the opportunity to see eternal results. And it's all about one life at a time. I'll wrap with this. And Ron and the girls, it's just one of our favorite experiences in the last 18 years. Vanessa's mother sold her to a guy down the street when she was 12 years old for a fifth of liquor. The guy started raping her. Vanessa became pregnant at 12 and had a baby and the state came in and took Vanessa and the baby out of the home. Vanessa never saw her child after it was born. When Vanessa was 19, she aged out of foster care and went to the streets. That's all she knew. And for the next 25 years, she was a prostitute, a crack addict, an alcoholic, in and out of jail, homeless. And she went through a Sunday morning feeding program that we had at Bunch of the guys from here have been down. James Lee's a bunch of guys a couple times a year, and they've gone to that liquor store where we started feeding breakfast 18 years ago. And Vanessa went through that line, and, and she looked at me, and she just asked a question. She goes, can I go home with you? Now, Vanessa and I, we're, we're a little bit different, right? We, we, ha we happen to have a different skin tone. We come from different backgrounds. Vanessa weighs, Vanessa about the size of a Volkswagen, just a little one, not a big bus. But anyway, she, she's a big old woman. She dips snuff and never spits. It's amazing, I'm telling you. Vanessa puts a big old chaw in every day. She never spits. So I got this great old big woman with this big chaw, little dip running down right here. She go, can I go home with you? Okay. So we brought Vanessa home. We put her in a 12-month recovery program to get her off of drugs and alcohol. Then she went through a 12-month discipleship program. And when she got out of that, they had diagnosed her with a little bit of mental health issues. So she got a little check and she couldn't work. And she calls me Diddy. I'm her Diddy. She goes, there, that's her mom and her sisters over there. She goes, she go, Diddy, can I volunteer at the city of refuge? I go, sure, Vanessa. And so this is before we had our big commercial kitchen. And so Vanessa started volunteering to make all the lunches every day, hundreds of lunches. In the, in the dining hall, we have this round white table, and Vanessa would sprawl out at this white round table. She'd get herself all set down in there and have a big dip in, and she'd make lunches all day for hours getting them ready. She'd start in the morning, and she'd have a whole system to it. She got bread here, and meat of the day, and cheese, and mustard, more bread, sandwich bag, then the brown bag, then the chips, and the fruit, and the water. And so if Vanessa picked up a piece of bread, she'd put meat on it, she'd put cheese on it, she'd take the mustard, go down, up, down. Now, if you help Vanessa, don't circle your mustard. Don't don't square your mustard, don't star your mustard. You go down, up, down with your mustard, by golly. So anyway, she'd put bread, meat, cheese, mustard, put it in a plastic bag, put it in a brown bag, put fruit and everything. She'd do that, make hundreds of them every day. It's cool to say. And Vanessa's been with us 10 years now. And, and for 10 years, 
Every time Vanessa sees me the first time any day, she looks up from what she's doing and she goes, hey! And I look back at Vanessa and I go, hey! And that's, hey, how you doing? Hope you have a good day. Love you. See you later. That's all in that work, right? And so one day I walk in, I walk into dining hall. I got a dozen or so businessmen. They're all dressed up in their nice suits and ties and nice shoes, drove their nice cars down. They're on their annual guilt relieving trip to the hood. And so they come down to hang out with me. And, and I'm giving them a tour. They're going to be donors. So we're giving them a tour. And we walk in the dining hall. Vanessa sprawled out over there making lunches. We walk in the dining hall. And Vanessa looks up and she goes, hey! And I look back and I went, hey! And these guys are like, huh? And so we took a couple more steps and Vanessa went, hey! Now, we never had a double hey day before, right? <laughs> and I look back and I go, what? And she goes, not hey to you, hey to them. And they all go, Hey, <laughs> crazy woman. And, uh, and Vanessa says this. She picked her finger up and she went, y'all be quiet. And I'm like, huh, I'm trying to get a check. She's telling me to be quiet. She goes, y'all be quiet. And this is what she said. She pointed at me and she said, y'all see that man right there? They said, yes, ma'am. She said, man right there saved my life. She picked up a piece of bread put meat and cheese and mustard on it. I walked out and I called Rhonda. I go, we're good. We're good. The guns, the knives, the fist fights, running for our lives, trying to protect our girls, trying to raise six, seven, eight million dollars a year now to run the organization. We're good because there are a thousand Vanessas in our life who believe we saved their life and we're helping them understand that God the Father through the gift of His Son Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit or what actually saved their life. But until we get there, it's okay for them to think it was us because we decided to be intentional and practical and relational. And I believe that we will see an incredible eternal harvest as a result of just being at the well where people are thirsty. So much more I can say. It's incredible what God's done. Let me tell you this. Jesus asked this woman, go get your husband. She goes, I, I don't. And every sermon I'd heard for years in my life had been around the fact that she's a bad woman. She's been married five times. She's obviously an adulteress. She's obviously a bad woman. She obviously does things that husbands can't continue to live with her. Now she's living with a man that's not even her husband. What about this? Just what about this? What if she's not a bad woman? What if she's just had a bad life? Because in the day and age in which this story is told, the greatest thing a woman could give their husband was what? A child, particularly a male child. What if the reason she had been married five times is because she was barren, not because she was bad? What if she couldn't conceive and men had put her away. And instead of us labeling her as a bad person, we understand she just had a bad life. Because you see, Jesus went to those who were bad people, but he also went to those who just had bad lives. 
And in the neighborhood where Ryan and I find ourselves, we got a lot of young men and women, a lot of sons and daughters, a lot of folks that we run into. They're not bad people. They've just had bad experiences. They just had a bad foundation. They just have a bad family structure. They just had a bad educational opportunity. We got 30 of our folks from the inner city with us right now sitting here at Level Up Youth Group who we love and cherish and take care of, all of whom are really good sons and daughters of God with promise and potential and purpose who just had some bad experiences in life and we could have written them off and said they're bad people or we could say they just had some bad opportunities. Now let's give them a good opportunity so that the good person they are can rise up and be all that they were created to be. Amen? Amen. Father, it is humbling to be your son. To understand that 